0: this is what it means to be a prophetic witness. Like the way we live our life, the way we interact with people, we understand like, like there's there, there like a counter narrative that we believe in, right? There's there a, there a, a dominant narrative in culture, but there is a counter narrative that we, we subscribe to and that we believe in as, as the people of God. We know that a catastrophe is on the way, that, that the goodness of God is about to interrupt the story in, in any moment. And so we don't accept the status quo. Instead, through tangible actions, we step into the brokenness of the world and we begin to, to, to uh, with a message of hope, release a prophetic imagination about what life can be like. So, so the way we live and the way we talk to people, the way we help people, the way we interact with the brokenness of this world, we do it in such a way to release an imagination in people about what life can be like, to release into people an imagination of another kingdom, to release into people an imagination of, 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 a, of a good God, who, who loves them incredibly. This is why, this is why like, it matters to not just like be casual with our faith. That's why it matters to not just sort of, you know, affirm the name of Jesus, but, but not follow him completely. Because we miss out on, on, on living in such a way that actually releases a prophetic imagination about what life could really be like for people. And we live at such a time where everywhere you look, there's radical brokenness. Massive brokenness and pain in people. And if the, if, if the people of God, if the church is not living as a prophetic witness, we're not releasing a prophetic imagination about how different life can be for people. That it doesn't have to always be that way. That, that like, you know, there's a eucatastrophe that could, that could interrupt their, the narrative of their life. Then, then what are we doing other than just coming together and singing a few songs and listening to a message week in and week out? We're in week five of a teaching series we've been in called The Normal Christian Life, uh, where essentially we have been evaluating, you know, whether or not the way we experience the Christian life, the way we interact with our faith, sort of day in and day out, is actually normal. Kind of asking the question, you know, is it possible that the way you and I sort of interact with our faith, the way we sort of experience Christianity in, in 2021 is actually abnormal Instead of normal, especially when we compare it to the first three centuries of the church and the early followers of Jesus. Is it possible that the way we're kind of, you know, walking this thing out, the way we're experiencing this Christian life is actually abnormal uh, compared to normal? Uh, A lot of the the passion for this series that that Pastor Josh and I uh, have been bringing really comes from a conviction that we have that, that the normal Christian life is not what the church normally experiences. I really believe that. I mean, I, I read, I read the New Testament. I read about, uh, you know, all the, uh, you know, the the things that Jesus said, the standards that he he laid out. I read about the early followers in the New Testament and the way they, they lived the, the Christian life. I read about their radical generosity, their love for one another. I read about their their surrendered life, the transformational power that they carried. I, the, just this 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 laser focus, this willingness to kind of give everything they had for the sake of the gospel. And and I and I. Uh, read about, you know, in, in church history, the first, you know, three centuries really being incredible, but even since then, there's always been, you know, an authentic remnant that's sort of made its way throughout history. It's why we have, the, you know, the examples that we have today to, to sort of go off of, but it causes me to, to just wonder, is what we're experiencing, maybe here at New Point, is what we're experiencing maybe in our personal life, is it, is it possible that, that a lot of it is more abnormal than normal when we compare it to the timeless standards uh, of Jesus, so what I want to do is uh, if you 're taking notes look at this thought with me, I think we need to recognize the difference between what was considered normal for Jesus and his followers and where we are today. I, th- I think we need to do this like so so uh, where are where are we today uh, wh- what, is, what is what is the difference between uh, you know Jesus and his followers and, and, and kind of our our experience or our context here today? and I think in order to kind of really determine this, we have to sort of ask the question like what have we embraced as normal? You know, what, what have I embraced as, as normal? I think that if we are honest with ourselves and, you know, and maybe we could just for a moment just sort of judge others instead of judging ourselves, right? But, I mean, you look around and, and you, you see a lot of people who have maybe, maybe embrace more of like a casual faith, right? So, so uh, 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 you know, a casual commitment. So, um, you know, as long as, as, as this whole Christianity thing, Jesus doesn't interrupt some other things, as, as long as I can still do all this other stuff, um, yeah, I can. I'll, I'll bring I'll bring Jesus into it as well. And I think a lot of people also just sort of um, li- live out the faith more, just identifying with the name of Jesus rather than actually following in the way of Jesus. Uh, and and it's 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 deeply troubling. I think we could probably you know sort of have a, a think tank and, and come up with like hundreds of reasons for for uh, for this. You know, hundreds of reasons for. Uh, you know you know what we 've embraced as as normal right uh, in in two thousand and twenty one I think that, as a result of what we 've embraced as normal it, it, as a result, the light of the gospel has struggled to shine to be honest right I, th- I think that when you see compromise in the church or you see when you see Christians kind of just sort of going through the motions or maybe the fire has has, has you know grown cold, whatever it is, I think that, that, that as a result the the light of the gospel struggles to shine the way it is supposed to shine. I read an article recently in the New York Times from 2015, and, the, and it's, it's a, it was an article called Googling for God. It's a really interesting article. And uh, the author writes this article, and, and in the opening sentence of, of this, this, this profound you know, article, he, he makes this statement. He says, um, he says, it's been a tough decade for God. Now, he's writing this in 2015, and the decade that he is writing about is from 2010 to 2020. And so he's smack dab in the middle of this decade, and he makes this declaration. He says, it's been a tough decade for God. And then he goes on in this article to sort of outline all the reasons why he thinks that's true. And one of the reasons he gives is, is uh, he says that in 2015, uh, Google searches for churches were down 15% compared to 2010. So he's halfway through saying, hey, people are looking for church a whole lot less, while google searches questioning the very existence of god were way 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 up he goes on to talk about how uh you know certain behaviors that would be in in direct conflict with who god is uh, had skyrocketed over that five-year period he in uh, you know outlines in this in this article uh that the number one google search that included the, the word god was god of war which is a popular video game if, if you didn't know and and uh he thought that that was just, just uh, incredible uh, to think about, that a, that a video game would be the top search to include the name God. And I was reading this article, and I, and I realized, uh, you know, that the, the author's kind of taking me, taking me on a journey. He's trying to get me to a conclusion. He's trying to get me to agree with, with the conclusion that he has made, right? And, and so I get to the end of this article, and, and, and I, I, too, believed at the end of the article that it had been a tough decade for God. I mean, there's a lot of more info in this, in this article. I encourage you to go out and read it. It's really, really really interesting. But as I thought about how it had been a tough decade for God, I, I actually thought, man, maybe it's been a tough decade for God because it's been a tough decade for the church. Maybe that's that's really the the, the, the reason. You know, I, I think, you know, the church that Jesus founded on his compassion and on his grace has at times, you know, failed to even remotely resemble him. You know, it seems like everywhere we, we look these days, we're seeing like celebrity pastor scandals. I know there's been a couple like real high profile ones recently in the news and and we, we, we look around and we see, you know, like the abuses in the Catholic church. Look around and we see evangelicals who are seduced by political power. And then you, you know, kind of couple that with materialism and complacency. And I think we have some identifiable reasons for why so many people have walked away from the church altogether. Right? I think these are a lot of the reasons why I, I absolutely hate it when people ask me what I do for a living. I I, uh, I, I mean that a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's it, I'm actually like being really honest because when people find out I'm a pastor, the conversation changes completely. And uh, if I've you know never met them, it's the first time we're talking, or you know we're sort of so trying to kind of kind of build a, a rapport with one another. As soon as they find out I'm a pastor, the conversation changes because most people carry with them an assumption of what that means. A lot of the assumption they carry comes from maybe like a a, a negative context a ne- negative experience that they've they're, they're being informed by, and so i i I hate it when people you know uh find out so I usually leave that in the, my back pocket when I'm talking to people and i'm I'm like very careful to, to like let that out of the bag and um because it, it redefines sort of sort of the the relationship altogether all now I love being a pastor okay more than that i I love jesus okay I, Hope that that's important to you, that your pastor loves Jesus. But I, I mean, I love, I, love, I love Jesus, right? But here's the deal. I, 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 grew, up, I grew up in church. And I've been a pastor's kid my entire life, okay? And, and I've always just been around church. I've been around the back office. I've kind of seen it. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, like I have, for as long as I can remember, always had a bit of a complex relationship with the church. I have, I have seen firsthand, I've witnessed and experienced, like, what makes the church great. I've seen and experienced firsthand what makes the church an incredibly painful experience for a lot of people. And I, I, I've, I've witnessed that myself. And so I I have, you know, I read in the New Testament, you know, how the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ, and then I, I, I look at my own experiences with the church, you know, that have been traumatic at times, and I look at, at, at some of the, uh, you know, conversations I've had with people who have had negative experiences with church, and I you know, they talk about the painful experiences they had, and people, you know, almost almost like cursing the church, not not describing the bride, almost more describing like a wench. You know, and, and I'm going, man, I've I, I've honestly experienced both. You know what I mean? I, I've experienced both sides of that of that coin, and um, and I know I know I'm kind of launching today from sort of a negative a negative perspective. I know I'm kind of kind of bringing some doom and gloom a, a little bit here here today, and, and I'm going to shift here in a second, but. You know, I, 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 I kind of look out as a, as a pastor, and I, and, I, and I try to see more than just our church. You know, I, I definitely share concerns about our church at times and, you know, uh, how we're doing on a spiritual level. But I, I look out and, and I kind of I try to think, you know, how is the church doing, like, in culture? And what I see is, is a lot of times a, a far cry from, from how Peter describes us in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Of people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And what I mean about, about, you know, where I struggle to kind of see this walked out in life is, is I, I struggle to see the people who are like, you know, the called out ones. I struggle to, to find, to see, you know, consistently the ones who are set apart. I struggle to see the people who, who like obviously look like they are called out of darkness and and living in the light of the gospel of Jesus, right? I, I struggle sometimes to see that like I should. If I've really been called out of darkness, if I've really been pulled out of darkness, like my life should look a certain way. And I think sometimes as a pastor, what troubles me, what grieves my heart is I look around and I go, man, like, where are the called out ones? Where are the ones who are living different? Where are the ones who, who, who live by a different standard? And so I guess, I guess the question, you know, that, that all of that sort of, you know, filters us down to or drills us down to is, is well, then is there any hope? Because, I mean, like we look around and we see a, a lot that, that could discourage us, right? And I'm just sort of sharing all my discouragement here to, to just, you know, uh, I did not sleep well last night, so I'm, I'm maybe just a little bit, little bit more agitated. But, you know, um, is there hope, right, is the question. How do, we, how do we get back to the normal Christian life? How do we get back, how do we get back to that? There's always hope. There is always hope. The hope is that each generation of believers is given the opportunity to tell, to tell the story of Jesus through the church. Like, that's, that's hope. No, no matter what the prior generation has done, every generation of believers is given the opportunity to tell the story of Jesus to people through, through the church experience. Like, the hope is that the, the church, you know, the, 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 the possibility of the church returning once again to the normal Christian life. The hope is in the followers of Jesus embracing, embracing the timeless standards of Jesus, his disciples in the early church, and returning back to that all over again. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what have we embraced as normal? I mean, honest. Like, just, you know, I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, here to beat you over the head, but, like, what have we embraced as normal? And is, is it possible there's some things that need to go? Is it possible there's some things that need to go? Are we experiencing the Christian life in a more abnormal way than uh, the standards that Jesus let out, the standards that, that Jesus laid out for us in, uh, in, in 2000, 2,000 years ago. So I want to talk, talk today, uh, we've been talking about the normal Christian life and really the different aspects of that, different things that sort of define what the normal Christian life really is. And, and I want to look at another one today if you're taking notes. The normal Christian life is the people of God living as a prophetic witness. As a prophetic witness. Now, that phrase, prophetic witness, might be new to some of you. It is not new to the church. It is a term that has um, described the people of God for a long time, but I want to try to help you understand what that really means. So obviously you're going you're gonna to immediately pull out the word prophetic, okay? So, so you're right. I mean, there is a prophetic nature to the church. There is a prophetic nature to uh, the people of God. And uh, I want you just to understand quickly, this is nothing weird. This is nothing crazy, okay? This is nothing like out in left field. Like there is a prophetic nature to the people of God. There's a prophetic nature to the church. So, what all these? What, what what does this mean? Let me just give you a, a real simple understanding of this, okay? To be prophetic means to describe or to predict what will happen in the future, okay? That's that's pretty common understanding. To be you're prophetic. It means you're going to describe or to predict what's, what's going to happen in the future, okay? If, if you're a witness, to be a witness means to have knowledge from personal observation or experience. So if you are a prophetic witness, okay, then as, as someone who is a follower of Jesus, if the church is a prophetic witness, then there is this element to who we are that predicts and describes the future because we have knowledge from personal observation and experience. What is our personal observation or experience? Well, it's Jesus, right? I mean, he's changed our life. He's, he's completely changed who we are. And when we have that experience, when we have that experience, it allows us to be a witness. And, and as, we, as we move around with this motivation of, of what God has done in us, and we want other people to know, we begin to share and predict and to describe what is to come out in the future. Are you, are you with me, any understanding? Okay. Carl Barth says this. It's a really interesting quote. Um, I thought it was really profound. He says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner, and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. I I read this quote this week, and I thought, man, if if you just took out the church and replaced it with a prophetic witness, you'd have like a perfect definition for what a... a, a, um, a prophetic witness really is. A prophetic witness exists to set up in the world a new sign, a new way, uh, a, a new possibility, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. You notice in this, in this quote there's like, like two major kind of pillars that he, he describes here. One is radical dissimilarity, and two is a hopeful promise or a hopeful message, right? And, and I think that these are the two elements that give shape to the, the, uh, the mission, the posture, and the practices of what is called a prophetic witness. I think these two elements are, are like pillars that sort of sort of help us define and understand what it means to be a prophetic witness in the world. And so I want to kind of take a look at these as we go, like the rest of our time together. I want to kind of take these two thoughts, these two ideas out of this quote, let them sort of serve as as like the pillars as we go throughout this message today. So the first one today, if you're taking notes, a prophetic witness carries a hopeful message. Prophet- uh, uh prophetic witness carries a hopeful message, a, ho- a hopeful promise. A hopeful promise. Now, a promise, let me just tell you this, a promise is actually prophetic in nature. I don't know if you, if you realize that, but if I, uh, if I you know, promise my kids something, uh, if I if I promise them, hey, if you do this, I will uh, I, I will buy you ice cream. There is a prophetic element to, to to a promise, right? I am I am predicting and describing the future to them, right? It has not happened yet. I want you to understand. There's a difference between like this this prophetic element that the people of God are supposed to have, and actual prophecy. Okay, so there there is just a prophetic n- uh, nature that we have where we we're, we're like. You know, living out this this faith. We're we're predicting. We're describing the future. A, a promise is prophetic in nature. Um, when Lindsay and I got at the altar, got up on the altar when we got married, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, how many of y'all know we made a promise, right? We made some vows. We said in sickness and health till death do us part. We did the whole we did the whole thing. We were standing there looking at each other, essentially predicting and describing the future that had not happened yet, right? We 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 knew. We knew the future will look like this. Like, there's a lot we didn't know, right? There's plenty we didn't know. But we knew that regardless of what the the future would look like, this would be the outcome and this would be what we would go after and this is what the future would would look like. And so a prophetic witness carries this hopeful promise, okay? There there is this this promise of what is to come. Jesus carried a hopeful promise as well. If you look in in, uh, Matthew chapter 4, Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, kind of reveals this hopeful promise. He says, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this is not a message that he's giving of possibility. He's not saying, like, it's possible it's going to come, right? It's it's not a message of, hey, if you want the kingdom, just repent and, and you can have it. It, it's, it's a message that Jesus is giving. It's, it's a message of, of arrival. He's saying like the kingdom of heaven is near. It is coming. It is right around the corner. It's, it's a very prophetic message. It's prophetic in nature because it had not fully arrived yet. Like the kingdom was with him, but the kingdom had not fully arrived. Are, are you catching me? Okay. And he tells them, I want you to repent. 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 So he's talking to them about getting their lives right. Repentance is really a total change of mind that leads to a total change of life. So he's saying, like, like, I want you to start to think differently. I want your mind to shift. I want you to to, to not, you know, live like you once did. I want you to repent. I want you to turn from this way of living, this way of thinking, and I want you to, to, to like, like turn, have a total change in life because because there is something that is on the way. There is something that is about to arrive that is going to change your life. If you're taking notes today, I want you to look at this this thought with me. Jesus' message was deeply prophetic and that he instructed people to live and act in response to the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. Today, our message is no different. Our message is no different as the people of God. And so what you have here in Matthew 4 is like Jesus really going around and he's declaring this message. He's, he's saying, hey, hey, you know, it, the kingdom, it's not fully here yet, right? It's, but it's coming. The kingdom it has, it hasn't fully arrived, but it's coming. He's saying, get ready. Get yourself ready. Prepare yourself for what is about to arrive. Well, similar to Jesus, we too carry a hopeful promise. We carry a prophetic message within us. We carry a message about something that has not happened yet completely, right? We, we, we carry within us a hopeful promise. We are, we are actively predicting and describing future events that have not taken place yet. There is a prophetic nature to the people of God. Are you with me today? Okay. What kind of promise do we actually carry? That, that that's important to, to understand. What is this message really like? What kind of message really is this? And um, I wanted to just kind of kind of give you maybe a uh, a different way of, of looking at this. I, I uh, came across a term that was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, famous author who wrote Lord of the Rings and, and you know uh, kind of a big deal in modern uh, uh, literature and. Uh, he coined the phrase "you catastrophe you catastrophe now you 'll notice there's another word in, in this in this word right it's the word catastrophe A catastrophe is an unexpected evil, and we all kind of know, know what that looks like right You know what a catastrophe is you know uh, you're living life you 're kind of kind of going through the day-to-day, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something expected that, uh, that is, like, really bad happens, you know? Maybe it's a uh, natural disaster. Maybe you get some bad news. Maybe somebody, like, you know, steals your car. Maybe somebody, you know, whatever it is, there, there's an unexpected evil that takes place. Like, that is a catastrophe. Tolkien coined this phrase, catastrophe," because he says, a catastrophe is the unexpected appearing of goodness in a story, So a catastrophe is the unexpected appearing of evil in a story, where a eucatastrophe is the unexpected appearing of goodness in a story. It's the sudden happy turn in a story that brings joy and brings tears. I mean, reach you know, eat your heart out, Rocky Balboa, right? I mean, it's 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 these types of stories. It's. It's uh, Braveheart. It's just about any epic film you could think of, you know, that is, you know, that has ever, ever happened where, you know, it's like, it looks bad. It looks like, you know, everyone's going to, like, lose their life. It looks like the bad guys are going to win. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, right, that is what Tolkien describes as a catastrophe. The catastrophe occurs just as all hope appears to be lost. And as a result, the world is made right again. So this is our message. Like as the people of God, we have a hopeful promise. We carry a hopeful message. This is our message, that there is an unexpected appearing of goodness that is about to change the story. Like it doesn't matter how, how like bleak, it doesn't matter how bad, it doesn't matter how, how dark and difficult like the world looks and life looks for people. We carry a hopeful promise that says, hey, in the midst of all that, when, just, just when you think there is no more hope, like there, like there is a promise that, that there is the goodness of God that is going to step into that story out of nowhere. We carry this message. It's the message of Jesus. And what makes this message prophetic in nature is that it has not fully happened yet. It hasn't fully happened yet. See, we believe that the kingdom of God is both now and yet to come. That the kingdom of God is, is here and it's available and it's accessible to us. But yet the fullness of the kingdom has not fully arrived yet. We still long for the day when Jesus returns, right? When he, when he sets up his, his, his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Like We know that the kingdom of God has not fully arrived. And yet in the meantime, the distance between when Jesus walks the earth and when he returns, he's given us access to the kingdom. He's given us access to the kingdom. And what makes our message to people prophetic when we share the good news of Jesus, when we, when we believe that there is actually hope when there appears to be no hope, what makes this message prophetic is that, is that it hasn't fully happened yet. There's more to come. We long for that day when Jesus returns. As a prophetic witness, let me just tell you, this is what our announcement is, okay? Okay. Our announcement is this, there are multiple catastrophes happening in our world right now. We look around, we see evil, we see evil plain as day everywhere we look. I mean, we can feel as if we are just, you know, incredibly outnumbered. It seems like there are catastrophe after catastrophe, evil is rampant in our world. But our message is this, at the same moment, at the same time, there's all these catastrophes we, as the people of God, are, are living in a catastrophe, right? And we are anticipating a coming catastrophe. So in the midst of all of this evil, we are, we, we are living in the goodness of God, the unexpected arrival of the goodness of God that, that has arrived for us to, uh, to embrace and to live in. And then we are also anticipating the day when he returns and when he comes Again, and so what happens is as the people of God, as a prophetic witness, we begin to see ourselves differently. We actually begin to see ourselves as as a forerunner for Jesus. We actually begin to see ourselves with a with a mission to sort of prepare the way of the Lord. It's very, very, very similar to that of John the Baptist that we read about in the Gospels. John the Baptist was a forerunner. John the Baptist had this mission to prepare the way of the Lord. He had one duty. He had one thing he, that, that he cared about. He had, he had one objective every day when he got up. It was to pr- prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, like he existed to create an expectation for the coming Messiah by preparing the hearts of people to receive him when he came. That, that's, that's what John the Baptist did. Day in and day out, he, he sought to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. Like, this is what a prophetic witness does. Prophetic witness seeks to prepare the hearts of the people for the, for the Messiah that is, that is coming, the Messiah that will arrive. Everything John the Baptist did and all of who he was revolved around his sacred prophetic duty to prepare the way of the Lord. And so we too carry a prophetic message, right? We, we do. Our message is this, similar to, to Jesus, but our message is this, repent, okay? Change your, change your way of thinking and change your way of life. Like, turn and go the other way. Repent, for the king has come and is coming again. This is our prophetic message. The king has come, and the king is coming again. And this is what allows us as the people of God to be a prophetic witness in 2021 in our day. It's a prophetic message that we have for the world and that we take to the world. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this thought with me. A prophetic witness does not accept the status quo. Instead, through tangible actions, it steps into the brokenness of the world with a message of hope and begins to release a prophetic imagination about what life can be like. This is what it means to be a prophetic witness. Like the way we live our life, the way we interact with people, we understand like, like there, there, there's like a counter-narrative that we believe in, right? There, there's a, there's a, a dominant narrative in culture, but there's a counter-narrative that we, we subscribe to and that we believe in as, as the people of God. We know that a catastrophe is on the way, that, that the goodness of God is about to interrupt the story in, in any moment. And so we don't accept the status quo. Instead, through tangible actions, we step into the brokenness of the world, and we begin to, to, to uh, with a message of hope, release a prophetic imagination about what life can be like. So, so the way we live and the way we talk to people, the way we help people, the way we interact with the brokenness of this world, we do it in such a way to release an imagination in people about what life can be like, to release into people an imagination of another kingdom, to release into people an imagination of, 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 a, of a good God, who, who loves them incredibly. This is, why, this, is why, like, just, like, this is why it matters to not just be casual with our faith. That's why it matters to not just sort of you know, affirm the name of Jesus, but, but not follow him completely. Because we miss out on, on, on living in such a way that actually releases a prophetic imagination about what life could really be like for people. And we live at such a time where everywhere you look there's radical brokenness. Massive brokenness and pain in people. And if the, if, if the people of God, if the church is not living as a prophetic witness, we're not releasing a prophetic imagination about how different life can be for people. It doesn't have to always be that way. That, that like, you know, there's a catastrophe that could, that could interrupt their, the narrative of their life. Then, then, then what are we doing other than just coming together and singing a few songs and listening to a message week in and week out? If you want me to preach, I'll start, okay? All right, Okay. Alright, um, okay, uh, number two, okay, so number two, okay, so we talked about in, in the, this quote from Karl Barth, he, he says, okay, th- there's, there's really two things, we talked about like two elements to sort of shape, uh, you know, wh- what a prophetic witness is, one is, is we carry a hopeful promise that's prophetic in nature, and two is this thought right here, a prophetic witness is radically dissimilar, radical dissimilarity is found in a prophetic witness, okay, so we are supposed to carry a counter-narrative. Is that true? But this counter-narrative that we carry, that we believe, that, that we share, that we believe is truth in this world, it really doesn't matter much if we aren't actually living out of that narrative, right? So you can tell what I believe, not by necessarily what I say, but how I live, right? Right? And so if I'm, if I'm releasing a message, a counter-narrative to, to you know, the, the dominant narrative in culture, but I'm not living like I really believe that narrative, why would you ever believe me? Why would you ever want to subscribe to that? People can tell if we really mean what we say by how we live out our lives, right? Do you notice that the early followers of Jesus lived lives that were radically dissimilar from the dominant values and ways of culture? Do you notice that? I mean, you just read through the New Testament, you read through the book of Acts, you, you, read, you read about the early followers of Jesus, and do you notice that they lived radically dissimilar lives? Radically dissimilar. They lived these radically dissimilar lives so that, listen, so that the onlookers might catch a glimpse of the beauty and truth of this other world, okay, the kingdom of God, this other world, and its king, Jesus that would one day return for his, his bride. They, I mean, they, they, they lived in such a way so that people might be given a glimpse of this other world. Their goal wasn't to make their home here on earth. Their goal was to reflect the values and the ethics of this other kingdom and then to live in anticipation of Jesus coming again. And so what's interesting to me about the early followers of Jesus is that, is that instead of assimilating into culture they intentionally resisted they intentionally resisted so that the message they carried in would in no way become watered down or perceived to be fake they refused to just assimilate and go along with with like the dominant ways of culture they they lived countercultural lives they lived differently radically dissimilar lives because they knew that they carried a hopeful promise they knew that they carried a prophetic message that described you know the, the the future events that would that would come, and if they didn't live this out like they really meant it, people wouldn't take them seriously. I think the tension for us with being radically dissimilar comes in us actively avoiding cultural assimilation, and at the same time not separating ourselves from the culture altogether. That's the tension, right? So either I'm going to like uh, like assimilate into culture or I've got to like separate from culture. And that's the tension. We're like, well what, what do we do? Do we just sort of like like hunker down and, and just and just you know live over here and wait for Jesus to return and like zap us all out of here or, or do we just kind of like go along with some of like the norms of, of, of culture. I love what John Tyson says. He says syncretism says we're living only for what's presently available and, and accessible. Separatism says that you withdraw from culture and wait for another world. But our call is to live fully present here and now while we long for another kingdom. It's not to separate and it's not to assimilate, it's to live fully present in the here and now while we long for another kingdom. Prophetic witnesses, listen to me, do not hate the world, believe it or not. The church does not hate the world. The church, the prophetic witnesses, are not to be protesting the world either. Rather, we are participating in the world with a vision of the way of Jesus. That is what it means to be a prophetic witness. We are participating in the world. We're not separating from it. We're not just waiting for Jesus to return. But the way we participate in the world is with this radically different narrative, this different vision of the way of Jesus. If you're taking notes, look at this thought with me. Countercultural faithfulness to Jesus is what enables the gospel to shine. Countercultural faithfulness to Jesus is what enables the gospel to shine. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement that is is really profound and one that is is, is incredibly famous. Um, Matthew 5.13, he talks to those who are wanting to follow him. Everybody heard these, these scriptures before? Most all of us have heard these scriptures before. Two main things Jesus mentions here in these scriptures. He says, he says that you, are, you are salt, and he says, and you are light. So what, what does salt do? Well, salt, first and foremost, it, it adds flavor, right? You ever had something there, you're just like, I need some extra salt on that. That's just pretty bland, right? It adds flavor. But beyond that, salt creates thirst, doesn't it? Like, like, like a, you, you eat enough salt, you, you, need, you need something to drink in a hurry. Salt, salt creates flavor, but it also creates thirst. And the people of God, what Jesus is saying here, are to live in such a way that, that it actually creates thirst in people. The people become thirsty for, like, what you have. They, they want what you have. They're drawn. They're attracted to what you have. But then he says, not only are you the salt of the earth, he says, but you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Well, what does light do? Light has one objective, okay? It is to dispel darkness. It's to remove darkness. It is to push back darkness. That's what light does. In fact, we could shut off all the lights in here. There's no windows, and so it'd get pretty dark immediately if we shut off all the lights. And if I just took, a, like, one small little candle, and I, and I lit that candle in this room while it was pitch black, every eye in the room would, would fix on that one light, right? Even though there's more darkness That little light has pushed back darkness to the point that you can see it right there. He says, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine in such a way that these these people may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And Jesus is really making this clear that since we've received the kingdom, since we've received the kingdom, we are to represent the kingdom. Or to represent the kingdom. Since we're the salt of the earth, we create thirst. Since we're the light of the world, we let our light accomplish its purpose. So, what does it look like to be the people God had in mind in a cultural moment like this? Isn't that the toughest part? Because we look at, at, at scripture and I look at the early followers of Jesus and I'm like, yeah, but our context is different, you know? I mean, yeah, it, it just, I don't know how that copy and paste over to 2021. Like it's really, it's really like simple, you know. We create thirst, and we let our light actually shine, and that's and that's it. Leslie Newbegin says says this. He says we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. This is why we live in the here and now as ambassadors as strangers, as exiles in a foreign land. That is what we are. We are foreigners. We are exiles. This is not our home. Because the way that we live, when we live differently, when we live with a different ethic, when we live with a different value that doesn't come from this world, but comes from another world, right, that comes from the kingdom of God, it is what points people to that world. It's What points people to that world. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we get ready. Uh, To close here, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this: It says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's a pretty loaded scripture, don't you think? So it's been my experience that the most effective discipling experience in the world is not the church, but that it is the culture. The most effective discipling model in the church is culture. Culture just seems to have an ability to shape us into its its image. Would, Would you agree? I mean, do you notice how easy it is? Have you ever wondered how that happens? You ever wondered like, how, how it, is just, it seems to be so easy for culture to just sort of shape us into its image? And, and I'm not even really talking about, about like, the world or non-believers. Like, that's kind of how they're supposed to behave. But I'm talking about like Christians, the followers of Jesus. Like, how is it that we find ourselves becoming so easily shaped by, by the culture? Cultural formation okay, is different than spiritual formation. Cultural formation means we're being formed by culture. Is when the competing values in culture, the competing values in culture are the values that are shaping us. And so, when we look in at this cultural moment and we look at like the competing values in culture versus, you know, the values of the kingdom of God, we can understand like like why the church is like losing ground is because all these competing values are the values that are shaping us. We're not living radically dissimilar lives. Here in Romans 12, Paul is asking the Roman believers to consider the larger forces at play that have formed people into Roman citizens. He's saying like, okay, so, so, so you're, you're, you're Roman, like consider the larger forces at work that have like formed you into who you are, that have, that have actually formed you to like think the way you think and to value what you value. Consider the larger forces at play that have sought to redefine normal for the Roman life. French philosopher Michel Foucault called this shaping of people into a worldly mold listen, the normalization of the individual the shaping of people into a worldly mold, he called it the normalization of the individual, in other words it's a redefining of what is normal a redefining of what is normal Paul here in Romans 12 wanted these Roman believers to understand that the way Jesus seeks to transform Roman citizens into Christians is entirely different than the methods and the values of culture. He has a different way. He has a different set of values. He has a different plan, a different way of doing this. And this is why like, we we want to re-engage the normal Christian life. Because this shaping of people into a worldly mold has, has normalized the individual to, to culture and normalized many of us. But when we carry a prophetic message that Jesus has come and that he is coming again, and yet we don't live lives that really show that we believe what we say, it undercuts that message and that message doesn't go very far. Look at this thought with me. A prophetic witness is radically dissimilar to the point that they are not formed by the modern culture. They are instead formed by this deep commitment to the way of Jesus. Rightly ordered hearts lead to rightly ordered lives. It's the way it goes. And when our hearts have been changed by the person of Jesus, the good news of what he has done for us, and we now have a vision of the kingdom of God, these reordered hearts will begin to impact the world around us with a hopeful promise and a radically dissimilar life. That's how how it happens. That's how it happens. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Rumors of Another World. And And in his book he describes the life of Ernest Gordon, a soldier in World War II who was captured by the Japanese, it says in World War II that that Gordon was was captured by the Japanese and and he was put to work building the Burma-Siam Railway through the thick Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. The Japanese hated those who were willing to surrender rather than die. And their treatment of the soldiers was appalling. Prisoners were beaten to death if they appeared to be lagging. They worked in 120 degree conditions and eventually 80,000 men died building the ill-fated railroad. Gordon himself got sick and almost died. The prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager of provisions. Selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. Then one day something shifted. One of the returning work crews was missing a shovel. The Japanese guard began screaming that if it was not returned, he would begin shooting the prisoners. All die, all die, the guard shouted. Tension blanketed the group. He lifted his rifle to shoot and one man stepped forward and confessed, I did it. The guard brutally beat him to death in front of the group. Later that evening, it was discovered in a fresh inventory of the tools that they had simply miscounted. This act of selfless love transformed the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, no greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The truth of that verse lived and demonstrated, the truth of that verse lived And demonstrated began to shake the camp. Gordon recalls death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti life. Love, heroism, Self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its true essence, true sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us, he said. He was with us, calling us to live in the divine life, a fellowship. The Anti goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp and in the midst of the hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone through. They started pooling the gifts and talents of the prisoners together to form a jungle university. Gordon taught philosophy and ethics. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, math, natural science and at least nine languages including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. They built a church and a sacred place for worship. They made their own paint and started a gallery with showings. They made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets and musical theater. And when, and when they were eventually released, they treated the guards who had tortured and brutalized them with kindness and compassion. Yancey concludes the story with these profound words. He says, perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. One of the challenges for every Christian is that, is, is that of Misinformation. We know everything about that which we can do little about and we know little about everything we can do everything about. Rather than aiming to influence people far and wide, perhaps we should turn our attention to the seemingly mundane around us where we can actually have impact. Would you stand with me this morning? The church is to be a prophetic witness. To be a prophetic witness means that we carry a hopeful promise and that we live radically dissimilar from the dominant ways of culture. And so the obvious questions this morning are, am I carrying a hopeful promise to the world around me? Am I living radically dissimilar from the dominant ways of culture? The question is, am I a prophetic witness? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? You're here this morning, and you would just say, you know, Pastor Jordan, there, there's some, there's some work to be done. There's some things I need help from the Holy Spirit this morning. I, I need, I need some things to shift. And when it comes to living radically dissimilar from the dominant ways of culture, you'd say like, this is a big one for me. I need help. I need, I need, I need God to step in this morning and free me from some habits and some patterns. I need, I need some things to shift. Could I just see your, your, your hands this morning? I want to encourage you in prayer, help to live this radically dissimilar life. Amen, amen. There's, there's hands. Up plenty of hands in here this morning. You're not alone. You'd say, you'd say, Pastor Jordan, like I, I, I think the bigger issue for me is actually actively carrying this hopeful promise to the world around me. I, I, I need help with that. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me to carry this message of hope to people around me, this prophetic message that the King has come and that He's coming again. Can I just see your hand this morning if that's you? Let me just, let me just encourage us in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would just, just send your Holy Spirit right now, God, that you would just settle in this room. You just invade the atmosphere of this room right now, God. I pray for an encounter after encounter after encounter in this place. God, that we'd come face to face with you, the living God, that it would radically alter our lives, Lord, that we would radically alter our values and and, and what it is that we we really care about in this life. And Lord, I pray for those of us who just find ourselves kind of assimilating too close to, to the values of culture. Lord, I pray for just a breaking free in Jesus' name, that we no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our minds. So Lord, would you just set every mind free in this place right now? Lord, every person in the sound of my voice, I just pray for freedom in Jesus' name. Strength to live the Christian life out the way it was intended uh, to, to be lived out. Strength to live the normal Christian life in Jesus' name. God, would you give us boldness? I pray you'd fire us up once again for this prophetic message that we carry in our, in our soul. That, that it would be like a fire in us once again in Jesus' name. That we would look and that we would see the brokenness in this world and know that the only answer to the brokenness is the prophetic message that exists inside of us. And Lord, I pray you'd give us boldness to release that message to people everywhere we go in Jesus' precious name. God, I pray we'd rise to the occasion in this time to be prophetic witnesses once again. We give you praise. We lift your name. We we magnify the name of Jesus today and just acknowledge and declare there is none like you. There's none better than you. So God, fill us up with boldness. I pray an outpouring of your spirit upon us today. Embolden us to be your voice in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.